Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 7 today. Uh, we're starting Matthew chapter 7, the first six verses. So if you uh, want to open up your Bibles and turn to the first six verses of Matthew 7, this one is a doozy. So I'm just going to give us a second to breathe, and then we'll just dive right in. Ready? Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 through 6, this is the word of our Lord. It says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we <clears throat> open up your word, studying this line, Perhaps many of us are already familiar with, do not judge. I pray that we'd be able to open up your, your word by the power of the Holy Spirit, remembering that we were under your judgment, that we were under your judgment and we deserved all of it. Yet you, by your tremendous mercy, by the tremendous mercy of God, sent your son to rescue us from that which we deserved. I pray, God, that our hearts would be softened today. I pray, Lord, that any type of veneer, any self-righteous veneer, any defensiveness, any shame, any condemnation, any of those things that we just latch ourselves to, Lord, would slowly start to dissipate in the beauty of your holiness. And I pray, God, that even as we endeavor to dive into a text such as this, we would find ourselves formed by the grace of God and formed into the image of God, into your beloved son. God, we really want to be more like you. We want to be holy as you are holy. We want to be changed into your image. We want to be redeemed and we want to experience that which is our redemption. We want to leave this building, Lord, with more than just a lecture in our minds. We want the power of God in our hearts changing everything that it touches so that Santa Barbara might know through what it sees in your local church that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. May we be that city on a hill by the grace of God, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you have to pardon uh, my voice right now. I've got a bit of a cough. Uh, Here you go. Oh, thank you. It's Charlie, everybody. Thanks, Charlie. You have to pardon my cough. I'm sorry about that, but, you know, don't judge. <laughs> I want you to, before we start, move forward by, putting, uh, uh, by keeping two scenarios in your mind. I'm going to drop two scenarios, very similar but with different nuances. The first one. 
I want you to imagine for a moment, you just, <clears throat> you've been going to reality, you got plugged into a home group here at reality, a really small one, got to know some of the people in the home group. One of them was, uh, is named Bob. You've been uh, becoming great friends with Bob. Bob, you've, uh, over the months, you've gotten to know him well, you know that he has a love for sports, you know that he uh, is diving into the word, that he is maturing, you know that he rarely drinks alcohol. And one day, as you're walking downtown, you look through the window of a sports bar and you see Bob, for the first time maybe, uh, sitting at a table with some of his coworkers, uh, watching the game, eating chicken wings, and Bob has a beer or a glass of wine in his hand. What do you think? And what do you do in that moment? Probably, I'm willing to guess that for most of you, you would probably just walk away. And perhaps he looks through the window and waves at you and catches your eye and waves at you and says hi. Probably walk by, say the same thing, maybe wave back at him, give it uh, a little bit, uh, give it very little thought. Now I want to change just a few of those details. Take the same story. Here's a scenario number two. Bob, it turns out, Knowing him in relationship to him in that home group uh, is a recovering alcoholic. And he is 11 months sober. He's about to be one year sober. And you see him in a sports bar with a beer in his hand. What do you do? I'm willing to bet that for most of you, your response in the second scenario would be a lot different than your response in the first scenario. At least I hope. Probably a lot of you would walk into that place, you would sit down with Bob and with love in your heart for your friend who you've gotten to know, knowing his struggles, knowing what God has done in his life to redeem him from a destructive lifestyle, might say something like, Bob, what are you doing? Bob, let's get out of here, man. You've, gotten, you've gone too far to just ruin everything right here. Come on. I've got, you, I've got your back. You're not alone. Let's get out of here. Let's go across the street. Grab a hot dog. We'll watch sports over there. I'll get you some water. Whatever it looks like, whatever it is, you'd probably run in to try to save your friend from sure destruction. Probably a lot different than the first response, which doesn't seem that bad. This is the type of question that a passage like this is bringing up. Two different scenarios. I'm painting a little bit of a picture. This could happen with almost anything. Now, I want to bring up just a third scenario just to take it a little bit deeper down the rabbit trail. Bob, almost one year sober, at the bar. You look through the window. You see him. He's about to take a drink. You go in. You say, Bob, don't do it. Come on. Let's get out of here. He looks at you, and he quotes Matthew 7.1. Don't judge me. Then what do you do? This third type of scenario is something that we sometimes face. All of these things are something we sometimes face or will face in the years to come. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. There once was a a time when one of the most used passages in the Bible was John 3.16. Now, one of the most used passages or referred to passages in the Bible is Matthew 7.1. Don't judge me. The cultural buzzword for this, it changes over time. The one that we tend to hear a lot is tolerance or intolerance. Don't judge me. Kind of the same connotation. Years ago, 
or I should say generations ago, tolerance actually had a different meaning. If you were to look it up in an old Webster's Dictionary, you'd come up with a, a description that looked something like this. It was the ability or the willingness to tolerate someone else's differing opinion than yours. I think it might have been Voltaire, I could be wrong on this, who once was quoted as saying, I disagree with your position, but I will defend to the death your right to have it. That was what tolerance used to mean. And tolerance over the generations has morphed a little bit to mean something like this, D.A. Carson. Intolerance is no longer a refusal to allow contrary opinions to say their piece in public, but must be understood to be any questioning or contradicting the view that all opinions are equal in value, that all worldviews have equal worth, that all stances are equally valid. So it's no longer an ability or a willingness to have differing opinions, but now tolerance means that everybody's opinion is valid. And anyone that says it's not or that you're wrong is intolerant. It's a type of a sanction in our culture that prohibits everybody from practicing any type of moral discernment. It, it keeps us from being able to say, this is right and this is wrong. Because to do so paints you as being intolerant. The irony of that is that in doing so, in saying that people cannot question whether something is right or wrong, is itself a moral judgment. And is, by its own definition, Intolerant. The Bible presents a different story. Far from that type of confusion and hodgepodge of pluralism, that everything is right, or excuse me, relativism, that every position is right, and no one has a, uh, the right to say that something is objectively right or object, uh, objectively wrong, the Bible presents a different story, that there is such a thing as wrong and right. And it's not subjective. It has nothing to do with what I feel or what I think. But there's an objective standard in God's revealed word that there are certain things that we can count on as being wrong or right. Murder, wrong. Pride, wrong. Generosity, good. There's certain things that the Bible objectively states is wrong and right. Therefore, to identify those things is not what Jesus is saying when he says, don't judge. Jesus is not saying, you can't discern between right and wrong. In fact, not only is it not judging, but in the case of good old Bob, for you to run into a bar and to pull him out before he destroys his life is far from judging, right? It's actually loving, if I were in a situation like that, I would be very loved, maybe not at the time, but weeks later, a month later, when Bob gets his one-year sobriety badge, I'd probably remember that as a loving act, my friend coming in after me when I was at the bottom. The Bible presents not only that there are right, that there is right and wrong, that there are things that are right and wrong, but that we as believers are supposed to, we're obligated to lovingly correct each other in some of those areas. In fact, if you just read a little bit more widely in the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus doing this very thing. 
in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter, uh, actually in just the next verse, in chapter five, he says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's an example of moral discernment. Or verse 15 of the same chapter, be aware of false prophets, Jesus says, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Moral discernment. Chapter 18, uh, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, this is Jesus again, same book, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Moral discernment, correction, calling things that are right, right, and calling things that are wrong, wrong, watching out for each other in that way. Jesus clearly demonstrates those things. So whatever he's speaking about when he says do not judge cannot mean discerning between right and wrong. So what does judge mean? Judge, or the original word for that that uh, the writer Matthew would have used, krino in the Greek, and actually, uh, actually has a wide semantic range. It has a few different meanings. And it's very easy to get to the meaning of that word by just plugging it into its context. We kind of intuitively know this, right? We have words like this in English. For example, trunk. Trunk has a bunch of different meanings that have nothing to do with each other. But all you have to do is listen to what I'm saying to know exactly what I mean, right? For example, if I give you a suitcase and tell you simply put this in the trunk, there is no way that you are going to mistake what I'm saying to be, oh, Chris must want me to go to the Santa Barbara Zoo to the elephant's area and jam my suitcase up to this elephant's nose, the trunk. I mean, you might think that, but you would be so weird. (laughs) You would intuitively think, oh, he's telling me to put this in the back of the car. Now, if I were in the elephant's area and I was an intern at the zoo, and you were a medic, and you handed me antibiotics, and you said, put this in the trunk. It might be a totally different story. But you kind of understand what I'm talking about when you plug it into context. And when you look at Jesus and what, how he uses the word judge, he almost always means one thing, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. He means to pass judgment upon. I'll talk about that a little more in a second and thereby seek to influence the lives of others. That doesn't really get us anywhere, so I'll just keep going. When Jesus prohibits judging, he's referring specifically to condemnation. To judge someone, as far as what Jesus is speaking about, is to condemn them. Well, what's condemnation? This can include, just to make this real and practical for us, it could include anything from expressing disapproval of a person though not necessarily their action, not what they're doing, but the person themselves, cutting the person down. It could be calling someone's character into question. It could be calling someone's salvation into question. It could be something as simple as criticizing somebody. It could be finding fault in someone else. It could be looking down on someone, feeling or acting superior to someone. Now, I know some of these, like criticizing someone, there's always an exception to the rule. But in general, it looks like this. Who doesn't do those things? 
I crino my face off sometimes. I am more judgmental than I am comfortable with admitting. And judging isn't always a sensational thing. It's not always like we're on a soapbox yelling at the world. It can be very subtle and common. For example, a marriage. I want you to imagine another scenario. Spouse, wife is at home with, I don't know, seven kids. She is trying to clean the house to get ready for a party that she's throwing the following morning. She's overwhelmed because, you know, seven kids. House is dirty, it's filthy. She's trying to care for the kids. She's trying to clean the house. She's doing it all by herself. She's sick, maybe. So she's deeply overwhelmed and uh, her husband is an hour late coming home. He comes home an hour late makes a beeline to the couch, sits down, takes his jacket off, puts his feet on the coffee table, turns on the TV, and starts to veg. And then everything falls apart right there. This is a hypothetical situation, by the way. (laughs) She unloads on her husband. And he doesn't even know why. You know, to give him just the benefit of the doubt, just a little bit of credit. He had a really hard day at work. He was on the verge of getting fired. He had a tough day. He got yelled at. Nothing went right. He felt just berated uh, and shamed. Came home, just wanted nothing else to do except veg for like 30 minutes. So he does that. Doesn't understand why his, his wife is yelling at him. So he asks like, hey, what's, what's going on? First thing out of her mouth, this is what I, what I want you to hear. You never help me around the house. You always leave me to do this by myself. You're never there. Things like that. She throws out some personal attacks. His response, because, you know, he just came from a job that was pretty difficult. He was kept an hour late. He's a little tired. He feels a a, a heavy weight of shame from his own job, and he's now getting attacked. So what does he do? Well, you always nag me. I always provide. You're never grateful. You're never thankful. You always do this. You never do that. And she does the same thing back to him. You always, you never, you do this, you do that. You hear what's being said. You always or never, it's a judgment, a sweeping judgment of the other person's character. It's a personal attack. Puts the other person on a defensive, whether it's the husband or the wife. Puts them on a defensive. It's now no longer about the issue, which is true. It now escalates beyond the issue to defending myself or herself. Because now my character is being attacked. Now I need to stick up for myself. And it goes back and forth, back and forth, judgment, condemnation. Do not judge. Imagine, different scenario. Husband comes home, wife says something just a little bit different. I feel overwhelmed right now. I really need you. Or I feel 
just frustrated and neglected. Now, no longer is she attacking the person. She's speaking about herself and the way she feels. No longer is it a personal attack, it's vulnerability. Changes everything. If my wife were to say something like, I feel overwhelmed or I feel alone in this, I would be crushed. I would be deeply moved because the last thing I want is for me to be the source of my wife's sadness. Much different reaction than to be told, you never provide or you never do this or something of that nature. I'd be like, well, 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 well back in 1967, I like, took you on a boat ride, you know? <laughs> Tell me I never provide. One is a personal attack, puts the person on a defensive, as judging always does. The other is neutral and disarming, honest, authentic, sincere, and vulnerable. These don't have to be sensational examples of judging. It can happen in a simple conversation. The difference, one of them is lowering yourself the same level as the person you're talking to or even lower, condescending. The other is raising yourself above them, self-righteous. The judging Jesus speaks of has a lot to do with self-righteousness, self-righteous treatment of others. Listen to this quote. I love this quote by uh, the late John Stott. He said, the follower of Jesus is still a critic in the sense of using his powers of discernment but not a judge in the sense of being censorious. Censoriousness is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. It does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. A censorious critic is a fault finder, listen to this, a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous towards their mistakes. And sometimes, it's not even in the content that you say, but in the attitude in which you say it. Could even be saying the right thing. You might be saying something that is morally, doctrinally, spiritually, emotionally, or in any other way correct, but you are saying it in a le- with a level of disdain and self-righteousness and condescension and judgment and condemnation towards that other person. Self-righteousness is a way of creating categories by which you can plug other people in. It's a way of creating a buffer between yourself and others. When you are self-righteous, you are, in a sense, lifting yourselves above other people. You're putting them in boxes and categories and say, well, you're like this and you're like that, in, other, in, in a sense, to separate yourself from them. That's essentially what self-righteousness does and is. You're separating yourselves from other people so that you can feel better about yourself, creating categories for other people, separating yourself from other people. And you can do this by saying something that's condemning. You, are, you never do this right. You're an awful person. Or simply by saying the right thing but in a condemning way. Today, to make things simple, 
We just call stuff like that judgmentalism. We take what Jesus said, judge not, we turn it into an ism, which is helpful, judgmentalism. Jesus' words are hardly more timely than they are today. Judgmentalism is one of the key traits in some professing Christians that turns away people who would ordinarily find Jesus very alluring. The Barna Group, research group in Ventura, in 2007 did a series of national surveys that concluded that one of the most common perceptions young adults outside the church, so not Christians or believers, but young adults outside the church, what their most common perceptions were of people inside the church. One of their biggest perceptions was judgmentalism. Over 87% of young adults surveyed thought of Christians as judgmental. Whether you are or not, you might be the sweetest and most kind person ever, the perception of almost nine out of 10 people outside these walls look inside these walls, and that is the first impression that they have, whether we are giving it off or not. That's just kind of what they're coming with. Jesus goes on to say, the reason you shouldn't judge, and I'd say that is certainly one, our witness to the world, our relationships with one another. We actually do love each other and we don't wanna judge each other, we wanna love each other. But Jesus bypasses all of those things, he gets to something much deeper. The reason you shouldn't judge, verse one. We're still in verse one, by the way. (laughs) That you be not judged. I think we can pull at least two quick things out of this. One. The reason you shouldn't judge is because by judging, you're assuming the place of God. God alone is judge of the living and the dead. Now notice it doesn't say anything about God in that line. This is a, what you might call a passive verb, where the, the doer of the verb is kind of left unexpressed. It's not saying who is doing the verb, it's just kind of leaving it un, uh, uh, unexpressed. This is something that the Hebrew writers often employed all the time when speaking of God because they had such a deep reverence for God's name. They tried whenever they could to not mention his name. They would use passive verbs to kind of refer to him without explicitly mentioning his name. This, I think, is one of those moments. You'd have to ask yourself, well, if it's not God, who else is doing the judging? The whole point of this passage is that none of us have the right to do it. God alone is the judge of the living and the dead, and to judge another human made in his image is to sit in his chair and make pronouncements that he's supposed to make upon people that are your equal. Romans 14.4 says something just like this. It says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Kind of a subtle pointer to the Lord, right? Who is the master who has the right to judge? The Lord who is able to make that servant stand. The Lord is a judge. The second reason is if you do judge somebody else, if you do condemn another person, it's gonna backfire on you. 
Listen to the next line, verse two. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I have to confess, this is the hardest line for me to wrap my head around. I'll get to that in a second. But what it's saying, I believe, is you're gonna be judged by the same standard you use against other people, so be very generous with your judging. It's gonna catch up. Romans 2, verse 1, again, reiterates this. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, or O woman, I think he would also say, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another person, you condemn yourself, backfires. Because, here's the reason, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is saying, you who in your self-righteousness like to put other people in lower categories so that you can poke holes in them, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a human just like them and a sinful one at that. You're actually in the same category that they are. The only person outside of that category is a holy and upright God. The only other person who has the right to judge humanity is outside of those categories. You are together in this sense. You have no right to judge others because you practice the same things. Or to put it in the words of Geoffrey Chaucer, people who live in glass houses should not throw stones. Yeah, think about that for one for a while. Now this is a tricky passage. It says what it says and I think it means what it means. But it's hard to wrap my head around. Does it mean believers are gonna be judged by God even though we also believe that we're justified by grace? That even though we're justified by the blood of the lamb, that there's gonna come a day where God's gonna make us give an account for the way we've judged other people? Or does it mean that the person who judges others, who condemns others, never knew God to begin with? There's so many questions that come up with this. And I just, I don't know. I know we're justified by grace through faith. And yet Jesus, without winking, says if you judge others, it's gonna backfire on you. The only person who judges isn't gonna be your peers, it's gonna be God. I'm just gonna stop right there with that because I don't wanna start putting words or speculation into the mouth of God. I'm just gonna leave it to breathe in all of its holy fire. But here's what I do. Here's what we can and should pull away from this. One, we should be incredibly extravagant in our worship knowing that we deserve judgment and have been shown mercy instead. And two, as a result of that, we should be very generous towards other people when we question them. Yes, we should distinguish between right and wrong, but man, we should be walking on eggshells, I think, if this is true. That we have done far worse to God than what other people have done to us, and still he forgives us. What does that do to the way that we treat other people who have wronged us? I'll just leave it right there. Truth is, <clears throat> no matter how many times I read this passage, it seems like every week that goes by, I break it. 
as much as I hate to admit, I, I do judge people. Intentionally, unintentionally, by accident, on purpose, I think the worst of people. I assume that people are doing something that they're not supposed to. When there's conflicts involving me, I, I rarely assume the best about the other person. I always assume the worst. I am the person that Jesus is talking about. I am the person that judges. And Jesus says, without winking a beat, without even expounding very, uh, very much on it, just don't judge. And I am replying back to him, but I keep doing it. I'm still weighed down by my own self-righteousness and I, I can't stop sometimes trying to justify my own actions and trying to point out other people's failures, even if it's just in my mind. Think in the verses to come, Jesus gives us the reason for that. The first one is in verse five and it's one word, hypocrite. A hypocrite, and we talked about this in prior weeks, uh, was a type of actor in that day and age that Jesus would have been very familiar with. There was a theater in uh, Sephoris just down the street from uh, just a few miles away from Nazareth where he grew up, which people would don on a mask and take on a different character. And that character was a different person than who they were in real life. Now in the theater, that was a good thing, but Jesus, for the first time in history, takes that and applies it to spiritual people. And he calls people hypocrites, those who say one thing but do the other. And he gives us an example of that in verse three and four. Why do you see the speck? I love his humor, his sarcasm. Why do you see the speck in that person's eye and you don't notice the big old log in your own eye? You can just imagine, just being a, just the north shore of Israel listening to Jesus say this. I, don't, I have a hard time thinking that he was being somber or dry. I think he was just being funny. I think he was just jabbing people, just like, how come you go around just nitpicking the smallest things and all of these people, but you've got this giant two by four just coming out your eye, just two by four. Like, how do you even see, bro? You're picking out other people's specs. How do you even see the speck? You got a log coming out of your eye. Do you know how silly you look? Like, that's kind of how I, I envision him going about this. This is a silly, ridiculous situation. He's using, like, this isn't real. Like, that's the, the silliness that he's trying to expose. <laughs> so you're kind of hypocritical. This is silly. Yeah, the speck is real, but do you not see, like, log? <clears throat> Isn't it funny how we can very easily judge others because we're blind to our own shortcomings. I find, it, I find it strange, personally, that I can be blind to all the problems in my own life but see everybody else's problems from like 10 miles away. I can see the smallest thing in another person and yet big issues in my own life like I'm just unaware of. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's so silly. And he says in verse five, after diagnosing the problem of hypocrisy and 
spiritual short-sightedness. First, take the log out of your own eye. I think this is where it starts to, starts to get super good. It says, before you deal with other people's problems, deal with your own. But that is itself the problem, isn't it? We can't see our own problems. That is the disease of self-righteousness. You are deluded into thinking that you are fine and everybody else by comparison is not fine. The problem is our inability to see the log. And the hope of the gospel is far more about Jesus coming to remove logs and specks, although we should say, yes, he came to do that. But there's more involved in the gospel. That Jesus came to heal people's sick hearts. He came to free people's blind eyes. He came to deal with the disease that is so deeply ingrained in us, that self-righteousness that causes us to be deluded and say, I am fine, I don't need help, everybody else needs help, and they should come to me for guidance. And the hope of the gospel is to say, all have sinned and fallen way short of the glory of God. You're the one that needs it. You're the one with a log in your eye, and I have come to remove the logs. Who will come to me to get those things removed? And what the cross does to the blindness of our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness, is it shows us the gravity of our sin against the backdrop of his holiness. No longer are we deluded because we're comparing our sins with other people. Well, yeah, I guess I you know, cheated on my taxes the other day, but that guy is just a jerk, you know? So I know I'm bad, but he's worse, so if we're grading on a curve, I'm probably gonna get into heaven. I'm good. No longer are we grading on any type of curve or comparison that doesn't matter anyway. We're now being situated before the splendor of God's holiness, the sinless son of God who never did anything wrong, nor was he neutral or sinless by itself, but he was righteous and filled with everything that is good and wonderful. No lack, no discrepancy, no shortcomings, no disappointments, no cavities, only righteousness, goodness, Joy, love, beauty, holiness, and glory in all of its unadulterated form. When you see that and you see your own stuff, tend to get a little more honest about what you got. What the cross also does to our judgmentalism after it peels away the blindness is it shows how much we need God's mercy. No longer are we worried about so-and-so and this guy and that person, but now we're like, if anybody needs the mercy and grace of God, it's me. Yet we're, just not, we're not just left in that place. Resurrection teaches us that Jesus didn't come just to slap us around, shock us into submission, show us that we're sinners, but to give us new life. The fact of the matter is, the gospel declares that you don't have to be enslaved to your inward-looking self-righteousness anymore. 
You don't have to find your justification by comparing yourself to others. You don't have to wake up in the morning feeling good about yourself because you feel better than other people. You don't have to get by through the day by condemning others, pushing them down, and stepping on their backs. You can wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night justified because God loves you and made you right with him. And when that happens, you start to look at other people differently. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh anymore. That's not the lens I look at people anymore. I don't look at people according to their sinful nature anymore is pretty much what he's saying. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer as in the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And if the new has come, I can treat you like the new has come. Lastly, I think this all gives us a way past judgmentalism, a way to see each other differently, a way to discern between right and wrong without tearing the person down. One, verse five, I think we see that it's, it starts with us. We grow a little bit more in self-awareness and self-examination. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly, Jesus says, Deal with your own stuff, or to put it this way, let Jesus deal with your stuff. I love that line in Psalm 51 where David, on the heels of his great sins of adultery and murder, says, Holy Spirit, or I'm assuming he's asking the Holy Spirit, but he prays to God, examine my heart and show me if there's any wayward way in me. In other words, I don't even know what's in there. Show me the things that I'm blind to. Show me my blind spots. Get it out of there, Holy Spirit. Often the Holy Spirit does that in the context of relationships. You are probably the last person to see your biggest faults. I'll bet there's a lot of people in your life that can see them before you. Like your spouse, your kids, your parents, your roommates. We just... If we're going to take the words of Jesus seriously, we've got to give them that platform in our life. And when those things are exposed, we should be honest with our sin and weakness. Take the log out of your own eye. Do you not even see it? Take it out of your eye, and then you'll see it more clearly. It goes back to that original problem that we have of justifying or denying our sin, that it even exists, that it's even there. There's just no way of moving forward till you recognize that you're a sinner in need of God's grace. The uh, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, who's a believer, formulated those famous 12 steps after some of these biblical principles. And they, those of you who maybe have gone through those 12 steps, you know how it kind of progresses, but it starts with one. And unless you get that one down, can't really go on to two, or three, or four, or 10, or 12. If you can't get the first one down, you're hopeless, they'll tell you. First one is this. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Their whole philosophy, 
from their founder, built on biblical principles was if you can't even admit or recognize that you need help, you're not gonna get very far. If we were to take verse five seriously, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see more clearly, I think we should be asking ourselves this question, Lord, what are the logs in my eye? What are the logs in my eye? Second, I think this causes a way out of judgmentalism, a way out of it is by growing us in love. At the end of verse five, he says, after this, when you take the log out of your own eye, you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice, we still take the speck out of our brother's eye. We're just a little more generous because, you know, log, log, speck. But we still watch out for each other. We still try to live lives that reflect God's holiness and his glory. But we do it in a spirit of love, no longer condemnation or judgment. And it's only when you can truly call someone your brother or sister that you are probably in a good place to speak into their life for reconciliation. Isn't it any wonder that the first thing that Jesus goes after, after the Beatitudes, is contempt and anger? Before anything else that we've gone through, and we've gone through a lot, the first thing he goes after is contempt and anger. The first thing that he wants to heal us from is contempt and anger. It is nearly impossible to view someone as your brother when you are driven by contempt. Jesus seems to be referring to the brotherly love that should be evident in us. Uh, In about 120 B.C., an early rabbinic sage by the name of uh, Yehoshua shared this following line of wisdom. He said, judge each person with the scales weighted in their favor. In other words, he was evoking images of that time of the marketplace where, uh, you know, if you were to buy something, you would have to uh, use a scale in order to balance uh, what that person was exchanging their currency for. And you would uh, put in some weights, and once the scale was balanced, that was how much that person had purchased. Now, if you got a friendly merchant, they might put a, just a little bit more in the scale. They would tip. In other words, they would tip the scales in your favor, so you'd get a little bit more for your money. This is the same imagery Jesus is using in verse 2, and he speaks about measurements. When you take it all together, it's as if Jesus is saying, be careful about the way you judge others. For with the same measurement you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, I would tip the scales in other people's favor. Or to put it this way, assume the best about people. I want to be careful. This does not mean we do not call out sin does not mean we don't correct each other. Nor does it mean that we're always to assume the best. Sometimes it's pretty clear that it's not the best. But I think in general, tipping the scales in other people's favor, assuming the best about them. When I'm driving through the parking lot and someone cuts me off, or I cut them off, (laughs) and they Give me some sign language, you know, and yell at me. <laughs> it's not really going to affect them, but what would it do to my heart if I just started to get into the practice of assuming the best? 
What if it just got silly about it? What if I was like, oh, he's probably sprained his finger and it's stuck like that and he's waving at me. (laughs) Or to be a little more real, what if I was like, you know, he probably just had an awful day. Or she just probably had an awful day. What if you went into a restaurant and the the server, he or she, uh, was rude to you, was late with their food, didn't wasn't very good at their, you know, at their job, neglected, just, was just horrible service. Your inclination was to give them a bad tip and to be rude back to them. But what if in that moment, you did something different? What if you assumed the best about them? What if you tipped the scales in their favor and thought something like this? You know, for all I know, that person maybe had 10 awful customers before me, and the last person was a Christian who not only yelled at them and treated them poorly, but left them a two-cent tip and a gospel track. (laughs) And what if in that moment, even though they did not deserve it, you left them a 30% tip and loved them the whole time? What would that do to them? What would that do to you? (sighs) Lastly, I think, what we can pull from these last lines is that it, we are to grow in our sense of family. I'm getting this from the last verse, and this is kind of where I'm going to wrap it up. <clears throat> We're not supposed to remove the speck from people outside of our church. This is a, a general truth. Jesus goes on to say, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is, sounds derogatory to us. You know, I would never call someone a dog. It's generally good not to call people dogs. <laughs> but in Jesus' time frame, in his culture, he, those types of phrases were used for Gentiles. In other words, the people who were outside of the community of God that did not have the revelation of God, that did not follow God, We're not in covenant with God. He was referring to them. He was saying, do not give what is special to you to people who don't understand it, okay? Saying, in other words, if I could rephrase it in this way, if people aren't receiving you, stop. (laughs) People aren't receiving your speeches, you know, just maybe stop. If they're not accepting it, just don't do it. Lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. In other words, it's meant to keep our judgments, I think, within the family. We're to watch each other. We're to love everyone else. Now, I know there's probably some exceptions to the rule. Someone might ask you for your wisdom. Someone might ask you for your opinion. Someone might be hurting another person. You have to speak out. I know there's exceptions. But in general, these types of judgments, the good kinds, are largely for the family, we watch each other's back. Something that uh, can greatly help with that perception we have outside of the church. What if they were to look at us and say, wow, they really, they really keep each other in line. But they're so generous towards me. Paul says something like this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote you, and this is in a context where he's questioning, you know, there's a guy in the church, so a professing believer, 
who's sleeping with, you know, a relative, really bad, kicks him out, and then says in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote to you in a letter, to the church broadly, not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters of this world. And listen to this. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. (laughs) I love Paul. He's like, I never told you not to associate with people who sin. Otherwise, you'd have to move to Mars, bro. Like, that's where you're at. That's where you're supposed to be, on mission, spreading the light of God and uh, uh, shining that light, being salt of the earth and loving people. But now I am writing you not to, listen to this, not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, but who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler, or the list goes on. That is powerful. Paul is saying, hey, I don't sweat people outside of the church. That's kind of their nature. They're going to do what they do. But you are professing the holy name of Christ. Hallowed be his name should be the prayer of all of God's people. For you, if there's anyone who dares to profess God's holy name but lives a double life, that is so bad. I don't want, I don't want God's reputation to be tarnished by that, so you're to pull away. I don't even want you to eat with that person. That's what he says. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders, so put away the evil person from among yourself. This is family business. Christ's name is holy and magnified and glorious. It is the only thing that can save. It is what the world desperately needs to hear. It is what Santa Barbara desperately needs to know. Far be it from us from reflecting badly upon that by lifestyles that do not take into account that we have been made new creatures. Now, this isn't speaking about making mistakes, sinning, which we all do. This is speaking about a lifestyle in which you're like, I know that that's what God says. I don't care. I'm going to live this lifestyle. Paul is saying, careful. But the point of this, don't judge those who are outside, judge those who are inside. We judge each other lovingly. You may say, yeah, but people out there, their their lifestyle, so bad, and I need to remind them that I don't approve. Everybody needs to know what I think. Besides, Jesus, he was gnarly. You know, he made that whole thing with the whips and the temple and tables. Like, I, that's my calling. I feel a calling to make whips and kick tables. I love this quote by Dallas Willard. It says, we must beware of believing that it's okay for us to condemn as long as we are condemning the right things. It's not so simple as that. I can trust Jesus to go into the temple and drive out those who are profiting from religion, beating them with a rope. I cannot trust myself to do so. In other words... Tread lightly. This is an in-house operation with a mutual understanding of love. We are to lovingly correct each other when we are going astray for the purpose of reconciliation, caring about one another. 
<clears throat> and we can correct each other without calling each other's worth into co- uh, question, without shaming each other, without judging each other, without berating or beating each other down, without tearing each other apart. I think that's why correction is best received by a friend. Even in a room like this, you guys don't know each other or most of each other. So it would be still weird for like you to go over here to a random person and be like, I saw you over there the other day, and you know what? I got a few things to tell you, okay? <laughs> but in a home group or in a tight-knit community of people, the relationships that have been formed, a trust that has been built, this is where it's supposed to happen. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And when we take all of this into consideration, we should have these deep relationships being formed where trustworthy brothers and sisters in Christ have the platform, have the space to speak into each other's lives, to encourage, to prod, to rebuke if needed be, and to share difficult truths in humility and the spirit of love. That's why Paul would later say in Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's how it should go down. That's the opposite of judging. But listen to what he says after that. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Same thing Jesus has been saying. Do it, but be generous. Careful. I think just as we must not make judgments on another person, we mustn't receive good criticisms. Just as we shouldn't make uh, criticisms for others personal, We also shouldn't take them personal. I think some of us from time to time, I know I've done it, have hid behind this verse. Don't judge me. After someone's tried to lovingly and very well speak the truth into our lives, people who've deeply cared for us have seen things about us that we have not seen and have wanted to correct the path, tried to lovingly encourage us and to watch out for us and to speak truth into our lives and we have hid behind this verse when in reality we were really just being defensive and stubborn. It's a two-way street. We need to be willing to receive just as we are willing to lovingly give. So here are two things I wanna leave with you before we worship. I'm just gonna ask the worship team to come up this morning that original question. As we've been going through the series, we've been asking ourselves this. We've been challenging each other this, with this every single week. What if we were to take everything that Jesus says seriously and not leave this building with you know, just a lecture, something nice written on our note cards, but what if we actually endeavored to say Jesus is the Messiah who knows life better than me? What if I actually try to do everything he tells me to do? How differently would our lives look? And so I want to present that with you today. Start by asking yourself this. What are the logs in my eye? And let's resolve this week by the power of the Holy Spirit, remembering what we have been saved from, to do two things. I want to leave you with two things. One, to view yourself. Remember the log in your eye. Speck in other people's eye. Try this. View yourself as the primary problem in every single relationship. We have a tendency to view everybody else as a problem, but now, just for the next week, just try it. Approach your marriage. 
assuming that you are the biggest problem in it. Approach your coworkers, you know, the table at the restaurant, the server, your employees, your employers, people on the road, everybody, just for the next week, just try it. Viewing yourself as a primary problem in every relationship. Growing that humility by the power of the Holy Spirit. The last thing is tip the scales in other people's favor. Assume the best about everyone. Start making good things up, even if they're silly. Give people the benefit of the doubt. And as you're doing it, ask your Lord to be present with you in that time to change you. You do that for this week. Come back next Sunday. Give me a report of what God did in your life. I might ask you. But the important thing is, Jesus speaks, his disciples listen. And now as we've listened, let's turn those words back into praise as we turn our face towards our Messiah and give him the glory that is due his name. Heavenly Father, come now. Fill our hearts with worship and our minds with praise. Open our eyes to see things that were previously difficult to see. Not for the purpose of shame or condemnation or guilt, but for new life. We know that you have better plans for us than the ones that we have planned for ourselves. So, Lord, we want to submit our lives to you. We just pray that we would start in a humble posture. You would open our eyes to see your glory and your beauty. That by seeing it, we would want more. In Jesus' name, amen.